So this is my second week in Bidud, <laughs> more or less. I wanted to talk today about the anonymous mothers. We know who Avram Avinu's father is, but uh, who was his mother? We're not told in the Bible. So my question is, in honor of those silent mothers who are not mentioned, what can we do about that? The Pshat says nothing. The Drush, the Midrash and the Zohar and feminist uh, uh, literary criticism pick up on this question. And so I want to go full circle, as is my want, to take you through a tour of, of these uh, traditions to bring us back to what I consider a deep Pshat, meaning coming back to the text and to look at the text and its lacunae and its absences and the absent mother, mothers, mother, capital M, Shrina, as a mirror of our biases. It's a mirror of where we're at in that trajectory from Pshat to Drush to Kabbalah to Hasidus to feminism to New Age all the way back. So, that's what I want to take you on that trip, because the sacred text then, I hope to show, uh, reveals the deepest part of ourselves as a mirror. And the self is both the self with a, a small s, and as Jung would say, the divine self, holographically mirrored in me, um, is the, the capital self. And that's transpersonal, it's collective, it's uh, collectively unconscious. To make that conscious then, I am suggesting that our sacred text, and it could be anyone else's traditional sacred text, becomes a mirror by which I look into it and it reflects and heals at any particular time frame, it heals what I am uh, going through. So then the pshat, or the deep pshat, becomes a code to be deciphered each generation and each person. And so tradition, the Masora, uh, is to be taken as a diachronic historical timeline of progressive spiritual enlightenment, or a reflection, a mirror of every generation's struggle with what they're seeing in that text. The text itself is uncoded merely as a mirror of where we're at. So let's go from the beginning. As I said, the name of Abraham's mother is not mentioned in the Bible. The father is Terach, the mother, we don't know. Not only does she remain nameless, not appear during the story of Abraham's birth, but is mentioned only when Abraham is explaining to Abimelech, king of Gerar, that Sarah is his sister from his side. And I'm going to share with you the screen and hope you can see the family tree. So when he's explaining, Abraham's explaining to uh, Avimelech, he's saying that Sarah is his sister from his father's side. So this is um, what we're saying. He uses the word Iska, but we, we say that Iska is Sarah, uh, the daughter of Haran. And this is how the timeline, this is the, the genealogy uh, of the children of Terach. 
I'm going to come back to that later on, okay? The sages of the Talmud now, the sages of the Talmud step in in true Midrashic style and record her name. And I want you to fasten your seatbelts because this is what the Gemara says. The Gemara says that her name was Amathlai. Okay, very nice. Amathlai, the daughter of Carnebo, K-A-R-N-E-B-O. Very nice. And that she became the wife of Terah. So Amatlai was the wife of Terah, the daughter of Carnibo. So now we know the mother and we know the grandmother. The mother's Amatlai and the grandmother's Carnibo. We don't know how the sages knew her name, but when they recorded it, they supplied us the names of a few others that are missing. Anonymous mothers in the Tanakh that we have no idea from the Bible their names. Comes along the Gomorrah in Bava Basra 91 and tells us the mother of David, the mother of Samson, and guess what? The mother of Homon. Homon's mother is mentioned only because her name is also Amatlai. Now, I've been meditating on this for the last week. Are you telling me that they're synonymous? How's that possible? Homon's mother is Amatlai and Abraham's mother's Amatlai. And then the, and, and that's identical. More interesting is the Gomorrah's rationale for reporting the names of the other three mothers. The Chachamims give us the reason they provide these names was to make this information available to those who engage in debates with the Minim or the sectarians or the Apikorsim. Meaning, I don't really need to tell you this. I have no need to tell you this. The reason I'm telling you the names of the mothers of all these very, very patriarchal figures, David, Samson, Abraham, is to tell you how to respond to the Apikorus. Why? Well, this may be a reference to the debates that the Talmudic sages had with the early Minim, the early Christians, who were their contemporaries. It's possible that the naming, and this is entirely speculative, <laughs> that the naming of the mother of these founders of the Jewish religion was meant to counter the Christian arguments of the Immaculate Conception of Yeshu HaNotsri, the Nazarene. Okay, who was Amatlai? And how come she's the same woman or the same name as the mother of Haman and the mother of Abraham? Let's go into the Midrash about Amatlai. Now, the Midrash that we have is very late. It's Oitzah Midrashim, medieval. We don't know where he got it from. I'm very suspicious. He may have gotten it from other traditions. And so he says that the name Amatila, Bismanche, Holcha, Avramavinu, Balacha, Ish, Terach, Shmo, Vataha, Mimenu, she, Amatlia, got pregnant from him. And after three months, there was a baby. When she was three months pregnant, her husband noticed that she was pale and, uh, and her body was growing bigger. Now, who was Terach? Terach was one of the viceroys in uh, the palace of Nimrod. Nimrod, remember, had built the Dorhof, the, 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 the tower. Nimrod was the greatest man in the Ur of the Chaldees. 
And Nimrod had learned from his astrologers, this comes from Breshid Rabbah 36, that a boy would be born and this boy would rise up against him. After consulting with his princes, he ordered the construction of a special compound where all pregnant women were commanded to remain until after they have given birth. He also ordered his midwives to kill all male infants that were born in these compounds. Remind you of Moshe? But to give many presents to all the newborn girls. And in this, the Medrash tells us that over 70,000 boys were murdered. Now she's three months pregnant. His wife, Amaklia, is three months pregnant from Terah, who works in the castle. And so he examines her. This is just a very, very poignant and very explicit story. She desperately wants to avoid going to this special compound. But Terach, a loyal subject of Nimrod, reminds her she must follow the king's command and report to the special compound if she was pregnant. Since he was still suspicious, he insisted on examining her. He did not feel anything because the embryo itself rose in her womb until it lay between her breasts. Terach now permitted to stay at home, and inexplicably, her body did not grow any bigger during the last six months of pregnancy. I mean, this story about the, it's not an immaculate birth, but it's certainly a miraculous pregnancy. When the time came for giving birth, she disappears from the city, wanders alone in the desert, and she finds a cave where she gives birth to a son who she names Abraham. This is the birth of Abraham's story. However, she was very sad because she was certain that sooner or later the agents of Nimrod would seize him. And in desperation, she abandons Abraham, newborn, in the cave and leaves him with God's care. Miraculously, the angel Gabriel saved the baby boy. So our tradition about Amaklia, the mother of Abraham, is a very brave woman ready to defy her husband and her king to save her unborn child. And she receives divine help in these efforts. But she loses hope after giving birth and abandons him. And now God's wish to have Abraham become the patriarch of the Jewish people becomes the motivation for divine intervention. Okay. This is Amaklia that we are talking about. Now, Samson's mother also is nameless, even though she's the primary character in her story. So what does this biblical anonymity mean? And what does the introjection of these personalities by the Midrash accomplish? Samson's mother's anonymity, uh, along with a number of other examples in the Gemara, is given another reason. Again, the name of the mother of Haman was Amatlai, the mother of Abraham was Amatlai, and your mnemonic to remember the two, but to distinguish between the two is Tome, Tome, Tohor, Tohor. <laughs> the mother and the son of this one, Haman, is Tome, 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 and the mother of this one is Tahor, Tahor. Okay. Now, I, there are latter-day interpreters why the Torah doesn't tell us the name of Noah's wife, Simpson's wife, Dovid, um, uh, Dovid's mother. They try to learn moral lessons from it, meaning 
The moral lesson is to answer the heretics. Why? Because Abraham's mother can remain anonymous, but the rabbis facing the taunts of the heretics, the early Christians, had to identify her. Meaning, it's a cultural polemical response to the self-identification of other people claiming the Bible as their primary text. So the Christians are claiming the Bible, the Karaites are claiming the Bible, the Sudukim, the Essenes, the Damascus sect, the Therapeutae in Egypt, and the early Menim. So the rabbis now have to jump in and say, well, this is our text, and not only that, we're going to tell you who the mothers are. So that's the cultural explanation. Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, latter-day Poisek, says directly that it was in response to Christianity and the virgin birth. So Abraham's mother and her identification and her miraculous pregnancy and the fact that God takes care of the baby through the angel Gabriel, the Magi, our Magi, is directly responsible for the, the virgin birth. Let's go away from these cultural explanations and let's look at a deeper level. The Kisve Arizal, the Shar Hapsukim, beginning with Sefer Eov, tells us at the deeper level, not the Midrashic, but at the level of Kabbalah, in which the notion of recycling of souls tells us something most strange. And the Shem Mishmun actually quotes it. He says in the Sefer Eon that Avraham was a Ben Nida. Well, of course. I mean, she wasn't Jewish. She didn't keep Shiva Nikiyim. She didn't keep Hilchus Nida. So the founder of our religion, according to the Arizal, was a Ben Nida. Ben Nida in the Gomorrah Nida is called Ben Pagum. A, a woman that doesn't keep the Hilchus Nida there is something flawed in the soul of her child if she had relations during Nidah. The underlying theory is that Abraham's neshama was so great that Satan had to seek to prevent his birth, ultimately allowing it only to parents who would not stop at any forbidden act. By contrast, on the astrological advice, Nimrod decrees the destruction of all male children. And according to the Arizal, Avraham's soul had to be recycled. So there's a deep connection between the soul of Avraham and the soul of Haman. And I'll come back to that. Now, let's just go into a bit more depth in terms of the other traditions that make use of this. One of the traditions that makes use of the mother is the um, Persian tradition. Now, remember... Breshit Rabbah is written in Palestine, but the Gemara in Baba Basra is talking in Babylon, under the Persian Empire. So these stories about the birth of Abraham in Breshit Rabbah and brought down in the Otsa Midrashim, the miraculous birth of Avram Avinu, if we look at the Persian side of the equation and their claim to the Bible, what do we find? The most complete and ambitious dictionary of the Persian language ever compiled is the author Ali Akbar Dekoda, who writes that Haman was the name of the brother of our master Abraham. What? Haman is Abraham's brother? 
And he was consumed by fire at the time when the idols were burned. Well, we know that Avraham had a brother. Let me put this up again, sharing my screen. Avraham's brother was Haran. And Breshit Rabbah tells us that both had to go into the Kivshon Ho'ace when Nimrod discovered them. In the end, Avram goes on his own from the cave and he grows up very quickly and he goes to the palace and says, there's only one God. So Nimrod said, ah, that's the boy that the astrologers told me about. Put him in the furnace and put his brother in the furnace because Haran made an equation. He said, if he made a, a deal with the devil, he said, if Avram is right, then I'll come out unscathed. So he jumps in. But he dies in the fire. The Midrash tells us about Abraham's brother Haran, who dies in the fire. So the obvious interpretation of Haman is a scribal error in the Persian text. It's obvious it sounds like Haman, but in fact it was Haran. Already in the first half of the 12th century, a Persian text states that Haran's son Lot was the son of Haman. And you can see from my genealogy, Abraham rescues Lot. And in the Persian tradition, he's the, the son of Haman. And he goes through the fire. This Persian tradition is maybe just a simple mix-up, but it's not as foolish as you think. It's not just a scribal area. There is an early post-biblical tradition in the Book of Jubilees, intertestamental, first century, first century before CE, that Haran, Abraham's brother, died by fire before Midrash Rabbah, and that the Ur of Chaldees, the Ur of Chaldees, the Ur being the, the cauldron of Chaldees, is the location of Haran's death. It doesn't mean Ur in the city of Ur, but Chaldees is the city, and Ur is the urn, the fire pit that they threw him in. And this could be interpreted as the fire of Chaldees. In the Jubilee, Sefer HaYoyvel telling, Haran, or Haman to the Persians, went down in flames trying to save the father's idols. Breshit Rabbah's inversion of this tradition is both that Abraham and Haran were thrown into the fiery furnace, and because of his perfect faith, only Abraham emerged unscathed, but Haran was consumed. Now, the Gemara Sanhedrin 64 describes a Purim custom in Babylon, in Bovel, of children jumping through the fire on Purim. And there are numerous accounts through the centuries, as early as the 5th century, of Jews burning Haman in effigy on Purim. What is the fire to do with Homon? The Homon and Haran were both remembered in connection with fire. And Nimrod, who in rabbinic legend sent Haran to his death, was also credited with having built the Tower of Bovel. So... Oddly, we come back to the Gemara in Baba Basra, which produced in a Persian context, tells us that both Abraham and by extension Haran, his brother, and Homon's mothers were named Amatlia. Look at our genealogy. Terach marries Amatlia. Amatlia is the mother of Haran and of Abraham. Based on such surprising texts, the possibility arises 
that both within the Jewish and Islamic traditions, this could have led to the Islamic Persian tradition of looking at Haman and Amaklia as the mother. Okay, having brought all this wonderful scholarship, let's come back. What does this have to do with the rabbinic tradition, the esoteric tradition that there's some kind of soul recycling? I have to suggest is that Breshit Rabbah tells us another episode when the same mother produces uh, two offspring, one good and one evil. We're told in Breshit 25-27. It's redundant. What do you have to tell me that the two children of Isaac, Esau and, uh, and Jacob, uh, they grew up. Okay, so Rashi says, you know, he made a ceremony, it was bar mitzvah, comes along Breshit Rabbah and says something very, very interesting. Rabbi Levi Amar, Rabbi Levi said, Mashal lehadas ve'etzbonit. This is a parable to a beautiful myrtle branch and a weed. They were, they were in a flower pot, one next to the other. And the gardener plants seeds and he waters them. Obviously, he didn't know what would become what. He found some seeds, planted it. He's watering it. Once they grew to produce flowers, what happens? The myrtle produces this unbelievable scent and <laughs> the weed produces a stink. In the beginning, they don't know. The gardener doesn't know. All he's doing is watering the soil. I once told you this marshal regarding education and the Piasetsna. The Piasetsna caused a revolution uh, in Poland before the war, aside from the famous Eish Kodesh that he wrote in the Warsaw Ghetto. His book, Hashkovas Avrechem, is a manual of raising spiritually adept children. And he says that we don't know what they're going to become. Each child is a different flower. You can't stop each child to make him a big goggle. This one, a big them. All you can do is water the soil around with the best kind of nutrients. And he had a revolutionary way of doing that. Here, that same marshal watering the plants and not knowing the outcome is used for a different purpose. For me. The Nimshar. For the first 13 years, Yitzchok is sending them to the Weizner and to Lakewood and to send them to the South Bend Hebrew Day Academy in the yeshivas. Both of them were sent to the same Cheder. He's watering them. And they both came home and they shtayed and they sent over what they'd learned by the Rebbe. Once they had matured into separate souls, albeit twins, now they had free will. So Yitzchak goes, keeps on going. He goes to the Beit Medrash Kavoa in Lakewood. And this one goes to the Greek amphitheater. Well, Omar Rabbi Elazar, so you know what? From this Medrash we learn. A person has a responsibility to educate his child till he's a major. 
at the bar mitzvah, you're not responsible anymore. This one is a, a myrtle, and this one is a bloody weed. You can't, you don't have control over the genetic outcome of that flower. Boruch shepatrani me'on That's where we get the minag of saying at the bar mitzvah boy, Boruch shepatrani. I want to use this medrash to tell me the, exactly the same thing about Avraham and Haman. Both with the same mother, at least in the Midrashic imagination, the same mother's name. Okay, the, 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 the Gemara Baba Basra says, well, we have to talk to the Apikosan. This is Tome Tome, this is Toho Toho, this one is Carnivo, this one is... Fine, that's fine. I want to stretch it a little bit further and say, this is a spiritual manual of discipline. Avraham isn't Avraham, Homon isn't Homon. There's an Avraham in me, an archetype of Avraham. When, when, when a Meshulach comes in the middle of the night and he's knocking and begging, all right? The Avraham in me takes pity and says, okay, no, come in, despite the barking dog of mine. Can, can I get you a drink and give him a check? Believe me, I, I just want to go to bed. I don't want to be disturbed, right? That's the Avraham in me. It's not me. It's the archetype that's working through my Neshama. We're just holographic images of something supernal. But there's also a dark side. And the dark side is Homon. And I don't have to go into all the character defects of mine. But that is the representation in me of the Homon in me. Amaklia. Same mother. Same mother. Just like Yitzchak had two boys. Yitzchak isn't Yitzchak. There's an Aesop in me and a Yakiv in me. One part of me wants to go to the base medrash, do the Dafyomi. The other part of me wants to go to the red light district. We are schizophrenes. That's what the Tanya says. The left heart and the right heart of the heart, the, of the chambers of the heart, are in constant battle. And the bigger the tzaddik you are, the, the kachut hasara. You're being judged to the fineness of a hair. So maybe it's not a gross uh, Yetzirah, maybe it's just the thought of a Yetzirah, but that's enough for a tzaddik. I'm not on that level. For me, it's a Yetzirah. And when I'm a good boy, I'm a good boy. And when I'm a naughty boy, I'm a naughty boy. That's it. So what does this Torah tell me? Well, the Pshat says nothing. The Pshat doesn't say anything about the mothers, right? They're anonymous. It's a patriarchal text. And the drush comes to tell us, the mother, but it's telling us because we have to tell the apikosim, yeah, we do have mothers. And the soid, we are recycled souls of both. And Hasidus internalizes that and says that this Torah, every personality in this Torah, the good, the bad, the ugly, is us. It's a mirror. When I look at the text, I'm looking at the mirror of myself. Okay, so there's a Homon in me, and there's an Abraham in me. So what's, what have I learned from Amatlia? Mamala, what have I learned? So it's Amatlia. By internalizing both the Homon and the Abraham within, I have now reached the anonymous mother of the Bible. I'm coming back to the deep shot now. I am acutely aware of the lacuna in the text, the absent mother. The feminist readings have taught me to look for those absent mothers. And now I take it one step further in an archetypal way and say, 
the mother must remain anonymous. She remains hidden to allow the Kuchibrihu and the patriarchal text of the texts to manifest itself in the world. It's not that, okay, it's the feminist anger. Yeah, I accept all that. I accept all that. But now I keep coming back full cycle every generation, as I say, new age. And now we look at the world from a space for the first time, this blue, white, cloudy, blue planet, and suddenly our whole theology has changed. The world is the Shekhinah, and we've abused her, and we're part of her. It's now an eco-theology. It's all one ecosystem. We thought we were better than animals. We have free will. All this medieval crap goes out the window. We are all dependent on each other. You exterminate one species, it affects every other. So in this new organic eco-theology, the mother has been hidden. The mother with a capital M has been hidden. The Shekhinah Kedosha purposely remains hidden. She is the mother of us. And within her is both the blight of Malchus and the dark side of Malchus. We've talked about her dark side. And that's holographically reflected in us. So I want to tell you that I've struggled with this Amatlia all week. And only in the rarefied accent, uh, uh, <laughs> atmosphere of Yushalayim on the Mirpeset of my father did it hit me that the anonymous isn't anonymous from anger or from rage or from... I have to come back to that shot and grab it and read it against the grain and to realize that sometimes women self-sacrifice for their husbands into quietness and sometimes they become manifest through us so that we, through the mother matriarchal archetype, can embrace our dark side as well as our bright side and then come to a textual healing. For after all, that is why we look at these texts. We come to an existential textual healing. Have a wonderful week from Yerushalayim.